the book of Exodus and chapter 20, verses 1 to 17. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall work labor, you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Well, as we come to God's words uh, and Exodus chapter 20, I wonder if we can start by thinking about the fact that human beings are wired for worship. We are made to respond in awe and wonder at things around us. You will experience that perhaps when you see a beautiful view. You come to the top there, you look out and your breath is taken away. Responding in awe and wonder. But we see it in other ways as well. We see it in the praise that is given to outstanding athletes. Uh, Whether or not you're a fan of Man City... You, can't have been, uh, you cannot but have been astonished at how many people came out uh, in the uh, somewhat difficult weather there in Manchester to praise their team's accomplishments of the treble. People praise greatness. And we see it also in the, the deafening screams of fans at the sight of their favorite music superstar. Now, why is that? It is because... Core to our being is to worship. We have been made to respond in awe and wonder. So, the question is not whether we will worship, but rather what we will worship. And that is the key thing at the heart of the first commandment. Because what we're going to see as we look at this commandment is that God desires that all people would worship him. He made mankind in the beginning to know him and to bring him glory. And God alone, alone should be the object of his, our worship. Now, how is it God can make that claim? 
On what basis does God have the right to say that all people should worship him? Well, that is explained to us as we look at the very beginning of the Ten Commandments, because the Ten Commandments have a prologue and introduction. And the prologue and introduction are verses 1 and 2 of Exodus chapter 20, where God both introduces the commandments and declares why he alone should rightly be worshipped. And so we read in Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. What is God declaring there in verse 2, in that introduction? He is declaring two things. He is declaring who he is. He says, I am the Lord, your God. That is a claim of sovereign and absolute authority. He has demonstrated in the book of Exodus this point, in the previous chapters, his supreme authority over everyone and everything else. And how did he do that? Well, he did it there through the plagues as he brought judgment down on Pharaoh and all Egypt. And what did that show? That showed that there is no one greater than this God. He declares who he is. But not only that, he declares, secondly, what he has done. This is what God says in verse 2. He says, who I am, I am the Lord your God. And then he says, look at what I have done. And look at what the Lord God has done. He has brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now, in that statement, God is summarizing for us everything of the first, few cha- the first 19 chapters of Exodus. He's reminding us that he worked to rescue his people when they were helpless and hurting. God delivered them from Pharaoh. And that means, and this is crucial, that they are his people. They belong to him. He has claimed them as his own as he has worked in mighty power. And so notice the language there. It is not, I am the Lord God. What does it say? I am the Lord, your God. That possessive pronoun. So who God is, what he has done, grounds God's authority over his people. And those two statements, the knowledge of who God is and what he has done, is true for every Christian here today. This God, the God of the Bible, is your God. He has come and made himself known in Jesus Christ. And not only that, this God, the one true and living God, has rescued you also. He has rescued you from captivity to sin and to death and to Satan. He has brought you out of your sin. You belong to him. He bought you at a great price in our Lord Jesus Christ and all that he went through on the cross. And so in this opening statement, what do we see? The Lord God, our God, the God who has rescued us, calls us to serve him when he speaks this first commandment, this first word in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. What does that mean? It means that we are to serve God alone and we are to shun idols always. Serve God alone and shun idols always. We're going to focus on that first commandment this morning and we're going to look at two broad things about it. First of all, we're going to see why does this commandment come first? Why not put it last? Why not put it in the middle? Why put it as number one? And then we're going to see what does this commandment call us to do? That's our outline. So 
the priority of this commandment. Why does this command, you shall have no other gods before me, a call to serve God alone and shun idols always. Why does it come first? Why does it have priority? Three reasons for us. First of all, because the right relationship to God is the priority. A right relationship with the Lord God grounds everything. And the life of the believer is always a life that is vertical first, right with God, and then lived out horizontally towards one another. Now, some in the past have got this wrong because they have put the horizontal first, and they have made the believer's life, the Christian life, all about our actions towards one another. So they have brought the, first, the, the, sixth, the, the last six commandments and put them first. That was the great error of what we call theological liberalism. What liberalism did is it turned it upside down. It said horizontal towards one another first. Then that will make the vertical right. And that's wrong. The vertical always comes first. Do not make the same mistake. Christianity is always vertical about being right with God first. If we have that relationship right because we're trusting in Christ, we're looking to him, we are believing in what he has done on the cross, then the horizontal will begin to flow. True Christianity begins with a right relationship with the Lord. Get the vertical right, the horizontal will follow. Get the vertical wrong, the horizontal will be off as well. So this commandment comes first because a right relationship with God is the priority. Second reason why this commandment comes first. Because worship shapes how you live. We've already talked about how we are made to worship. You and I are created to worship something. But it goes further than that. Because what we revere in worship, we will reflect in life. We are made to worship and we are made to reflect the thing that we worship. And when we worship and lift up people, we will reflect them. So we'll reflect their appearance and their character and their values. And don't we see that all the time? We see it how fans of uh, great musicians, what do they do? Well, they dress and they speak and they copy the superstars whom they idolize. When it comes to sports, what do we see? Everyone wants to look like their favorite sports person. Everyone wants to dress like their favorite sports person. We reflect that which we worship. And the God who is all-wise knows how we are made. He has made us to be like that, but he has made us to worship him and therefore to reflect his character. It's one of the things we saw last week, didn't we? That the Ten Commandments, first of all, reflects the character of God. So this is the pattern of the commandments. It begins with worship, recognizing that that will then flow into life. So friends, if we are worshiping God, then we will increasingly reflect God's character. And if we are worshiping anything or anyone else, then we will reflect that. We'll be shaped by it. So it comes first because a right relationship with God is a priority. It comes first because worship shapes how we live. But then thirdly, it comes first because it leads us to obey 
the other commandments. You can root every other sin back to the breaking of this very first commandment. You can trace every other sin that might be covered by the remaining nine commandments back to the first commandment. Here's new ways we can do that. If we, were, if we are misusing God's name, the third commandment, why are we doing that? Well, at heart, it is because we do not think of God as highly as we should. We are not worshipping him as we should. If we cover the possessions of others, the tenth commandment, what are we doing? We are worshipping those possessions and we are wanting them more than the Lord our God. So, in focusing especially on keeping this commandment to serve God alone and to shun idols always, we are helped in obeying the others as well. So, friends, do you see the way in which the structure is very deliberate? It's deliberate because we need to be right with God first, knowing God through our Lord Jesus Christ that then flows into life, vertical then horizontal. It's structured this way because what we worship we will reflect. And so if we are worshipping our great God, we will reflect him in his character in how we live, which is seen in the rest of the commandments. And then, as we seek to obey this very first and primary commandment, we will be helped in obeying the other commandments. And for that reason, this principle of serving God alone and shunning idols always is said again and again and again as you work through the pages of Scripture. It is, we might say, the central commandment. So Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. I'll read it to you. If you have a Bible, please turn to it. But this is what is known as the Shema Israel. It's the summary uh, of the law. And what do we read in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God... The Lord is one, or alternatively, the Lord alone is God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. It's the same thing. Serving God always, shunning idols, serving God alone, shunning idols always. And then as God's people go on and they enter the promised land and Joshua leads the people in Joshua chapter 24, we find a very similar command to serve God alone and shun the idols. Joshua 24 and verse 14, we hear this. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the river, Euphrates and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. Do you see the echo coming through? And then in 1 Kings, uh, the great, um, well, the the very uh, sad and solemn but astonishing occasion where Elijah comes to Mount Carmel and he speaks there to the Israelites and he says to them, you've got to choose to serve the Lord. What does he say? He says something very similar. In 1 Kings 18 verse 21 we hear this. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two options? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Are you seeing the echo? The Lord God is God, therefore follow him. Serve God alone, shun idols always. But of course, it doesn't stop there. If we go into the New Testament, we could go to many verses, but let's just go to one in Matthew chapter 6 
and remember Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, where he says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other. You'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And we can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that James took us to last Sunday evening. We'd see exactly the same thing. So friends, this commandment to serve God alone and shun idols always is the primary commandment both in position and importance. So we should especially focus upon it. Which therefore brings us to the practice of this commandment. And we're just going to unpack those two things. (laughs) What does it mean to have no other gods before me? Well, it means, as we see, secondly, the practice of this commandment, we are to serve God alone. Now, I don't know about you, but perhaps you were struck in hearing that commandment by the way it's phrased. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, does that mean that the Lord God is saying, you can have other gods, but they just can't come above me? Is it a claim from the Lord that he is hierarchically the top God in that sense, but other gods are right and legitimate? No, that's not what's going on. This is a claim, an exclusive claim, that we would serve God alone. In fact, perhaps the best way to read this is, you shall have no other gods in my presence, before me in that sense, in my presence. So, like a great king there in court would banish all others who might claim the same authority as him, that is what God is doing. They cannot remain or dwell in his presence. But where is God's presence? Well, God's presence is, well, it's everywhere, isn't it? God is all-present. God is ever-living. So the God who is everywhere at all times means, therefore, when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, he is saying, I am everywhere. I I am an omnipresent God. He is saying, I'm an ever-living God. And therefore, there should be no other God in my presence or for all of eternity. It's an exclusive claim. No rivals, no substitutes allowed anywhere and at any time. So, Christianity is not like a Trivial Pursuit game. Trivial Pursuit, you've got the circular token, haven't you? And I think it's six triangles that you fit within that circular token. You go around the board, you answer the questions for different subjects, and it goes there in your token. God is not like one of the pieces in that pie that makes up your token. He's not a part of your life that in that sense maybe makes you full. Christianity is not like packing the car for holiday. Because what do you do when you pack the car for holiday? You say, let's get everything out. That's always my strategy. It never happens. But we're going to get everything out. We're going to look at it. And what goes in the car first? The big stuff. What goes in the car next? The medium-sized stuff. What goes in the car last? The small stuff. And what goes back in the house? is what we can't get in. Christianity is not like packing the car for the holiday where God's the big thing that you've got to fit in first and everything else goes around it. God owns everything. He is and has authority over the whole car. 
He is the whole pie, as it were, in that trivial pursuit of your life. So the Lord God here is saying, he should be everything to you. The question is not, do I have, do I have space to fit him in around other things, and then I'll serve them and him sometimes. And it is so sad that some treat God like he is one thing among many other competing demands. He gets a slice of my week. He gets a few hours on a Sunday or sometime during the week. But the rest of the time, well, that's given over to serving other things and myself. That is sinful. We should not treat the God of heaven and earth like that. He is everything and should be everything to us. If you ever want to know all the fullness of what it might mean to keep one of the commandments, turn to a Puritan, and they will give you hundreds of ways in which you can work this out. But Thomas Watson, one of the great Puritans who wrote a whole book on the Ten Commandments, described serving God alone, putting God first, as these seven things. To know him as God, that is to turn from atheism's denial of his existence to choose him as our saviour by faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, to revere him as our king, that we always want to please him and him alone, to fear him as the judge of all the earth, so that we never want to offend him, to trust him in all circumstances, being confident of his good purposes, to love him with all of our hearts, supreme in our affections, and to obey him with all of our lives, delighting to do his will. Friends, we are to serve God and him alone. Now, when you hear that, I wonder if many of us respond and think, that, that sounds incredibly constraining. That sounds like a straitjacket. Well, friends, what I want you to see is actually, it is a life of real and true freedom. Because you only have to serve, ultimately, one master. That's a great thing. It's a great thing. We've said already that we're made to worship. We've said already that there are many different things that we can worship, and people do worship. And the great problem in our day is that people worship everything and anything, and so are pulled and stretched in a multitude of different directions. And that is a horrible thing. Now, now the ancient world was no different. In the ancient world, people lived in great fear of what they thought were gods, but their gods were, they they understood to be gods, they they thought of them as powerful, but as unkind and unpredictable. So in the ancient world, you would fear waking up the next day and finding that the god had decided that day to make fun at your expense. And that was a scary world to live in. A, girl, a world with many gods, and you don't know how they're going to respond to you that day. And today, many people live with that kind of fear, not of the gods of the ancient days, but the gods of our days. And we know what there are, don't we? People fear the crowd, not wanting to be excluded or shamed or stand out. People fear many other things, and the demands of those many other gods are exhausting inconsistent and ever-changing. You will feel pulled in all directions. You will be torn apart emotionally because those gods can never be satisfied and their demands are always changing. But single-minded, 
exclusive service to the one true God brings freedom. You only need to worry about one pair of eyes in that sense, God's eyes. You only need to worry about one stamp of approval, God's stamp of approval. You only need to worry about ultimately serving one person, and that is the Lord God. And friends, I really would be, I'm burdened that we'd see this, that, that serving the one true God frees us from needing to serve other gods. And it frees us from the fear of those other things. So true stability comes from keeping this commandment. It's a great thing to be free to serve one God, and it is the God of the Bible. Serve God alone. But then secondly, shun idols always. So we've we've looked at why this commandment comes first. We've seen some reasons for that. Now we're talking about the practice of this commandment, and we've seen that it means that we serve God alone. And that is a, a big demand. It's a challenging demand, but it's a freeing demand. But then also we see that in this commandment we are to also shun idols always. Now look down with me at Exodus 20 and verse 3, and you'll see that, again, there's something a little bit um, curious about it, because it says, you shall have no other gods before me. And maybe you read that and you think, well, hang on a minute. Is the Lord God acknowledging that there are real deities, other gods? Well, no, that can't be the case, can it? What he is doing here is he is reminding us that other things have power over us like gods, and therefore we serve them. We are always going back to old idols. We are always creating new idols, things that we might serve. And in this commandment, not only is God saying, serve me always, God is also saying, cleanse and clear out the idols from your heart. And the thing that we need to see here is this call to shun idols always is not like a spring clean. The spring clean happens once a year. It's a great thing, but it's an occasional thing. It's a now and again kind of thing. This commandment calls us to an ongoing priority to keep on going back to it. And the challenge today that we need to feel is that if we are walking by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ today, if we know the Lord God as our God in all the ways that we've spoken about already, There is a daily ongoing priority to keep on turning from false idols and false gods. I was struck this week in reading uh, Phil Riken's insightful analysis of the life of King Solomon. If you know anything of the life of King Solomon, uh, David's son, you'll know uh, that he began so very well. He was there, appointed as king, And the Lord uh, said, what would you like me to do for you? And what did Solomon ask for? Solomon asked for wisdom to rule God's people well. A great thing for a king to ask for. We see as we look at Solomon's life that he was undoubtedly a man of prayer. He prayed some amazing prayers in the scriptures. And, And God blessed him so much that he was so wise that he could give counsel to kings and queens. They came from hundreds and thousands of miles 
to come and see Solomon. He built the temple in Jerusalem. What a privilege. But then following the dedication of the temple, God appeared to Solomon and told him to serve him alone and to shun idols. He reminded him of that priority in 1 Kings chapter 9 in verse 6. The Lord says, But if you or your descendants turn away from me and do not observe the commandments and decrees I have given you, and go and serve other gods and worship them. Do you hear the warning? Do not serve the other gods. Keep on serving me. But the sad thing is, is that as we look at Solomon's life, we find that he didn't heed that warning. Because towards the end of his life, in 1 Kings chapter 11, we read these words. 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 4 to 6. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. That is a tragedy, is it not, friends? How did it happen? Well, Riken goes back through Solomon's life and highlights the way in a number of areas that he turned his service from God to other things. He turned his service to riches and possessions, building his own house, spending 13 years building this house, twice the amount of time that he spent building God's temple. He turned his heart to serve power and might, building up his own army of horses and chariots, specifically against God's command. And he turned his heart to serve the God of pleasure, accumulating many wives and concubines. Now, why are we looking at this? We're looking at this because we are seeing that someone who started well, who was seeking to serve the Lord, it seems, then managed to go away from the Lord and serve other gods. And so the warning from Solomon is this. He served other gods in his heart well before he served other gods in his knees on their temples. Take heed, friends. This commandment calls us to serve God alone and to shun idols always. So start early. Do it regularly. Clean the idols from your heart. Don't just make it a spring clean. Get rid of false gods and do that regularly. Now I want to talk about three ways in which we can do that. And we close with this. We are to do three things as we're trying to shun idols always. We are to recognize our idols. Recognize our false gods. We cannot shun our idols without knowing what they are. Do you know what the idols of your heart are? There are two ways to think about this. There are common idols that are common in every age. And there is pressure all around us to serve them in particular. So for Israel, it was the gods of Egypt when they had come out of Egypt. For the Canaanites, it was the god Baal. Sorry, for the Israelites in Canaan, it was a god Baal. Well, what is the main common god in our day? Well, it's the god of self, is it not? We have turned inward and we have lifted up humans 
to a level that we shouldn't have. We have lifted up ourselves and worshipping ourselves to a level that is wrong. And so we serve our own desires. We serve our own preferences. We serve our own plans. We serve our own ways. We want recognition. We want to be valued by people. We want our own way. And the great sadness in serving this common God of the self is it turns us inward. It makes us entitled. It makes us selfish. And we forget the needs of others. Many have commented that it is in some the cause of stress and anxiety because we are serving the God of self. And this is a powerful God. And we need to turn from it. But in addition to the common gods, there are personal gods, personal idols. There are specific struggles to each person. And we need to know our idols. We need to recognize them. Here's two key diagnostic questions that you can ask of yourself and your heart to identify the things that are becoming idols. What do I love or desire most? What fills my mind when it's free to wonder? What bothers me more than anything else? Bothers in a positive way. It burdens me. Oregon wrote these words. What each one honors before all else. What before all things he admires and loves. This for him is God. What do you desire or love most? Second diagnostic question. What things do you trust in? In trouble and uncertainty, where do you turn? Martin Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is properly your God. So if you want to identify the idols of your heart as God calls us to here in this command, if we want to obey what God calls us to, we need to identify both the common idols of our day and the personal idols that particularly challenge our hearts, the things we love and desire most and the things we trust in, in trouble and uncertainty. So friends, will you ask those questions of yourself? Will you sit down with a pen and paper and prayerfully reflect on your life this week? We find half an hour, an hour to do it. God is calling us to shun idols and we have to know what they are. If you struggle to do that, speak to a trusted friend. Say, help me identify my false idols. But be reflective and learn to read your heart. Recognize your idols, first step. Second step, repent of idolatry. Don't just know what your idols are Name them before the Lord in repentance. In our home groups this week, we turn to Psalm 32. And it was striking in Psalm 32 that David found relief and forgiveness when he specifically named his sins in confession before the Lord. Now, I think we often stop at recognizing idols. We might know things in our culture We might know things in our hearts that we might serve, but we don't do this next step. We need to repent of them. In Psalm 32, what does David say? There was that sense in which 
The things were weighing on him. I kept silent. My bones wasted away through groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. So David knows that he has sin. David knows that something is wrong. But, verse 5, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So it's not just enough to know them. We need to name them before God in repentance. And when we do that, we are no longer hiding them from the Lord. We are bringing those idols to the Lord and saying, Lord, help me to turn from them. We repent of our idolatry. But then thirdly, we need to replace our idols. We need to recognize our idols. We need to repent of our idolatry and we need to replace them. And just like the second step, I don't think we often get here. But we need to go here. And this is why. Go back to where we started. We are all made to serve something. Our hearts will worship. That is how we are wired. And so, if we just know what our idols are, and repent of those idols, but do not replace them, they will keep on coming back. Our hearts will keep on serving those things. So just like um, dusting uh, in the spring clean leads to dust again a little while longer, it's not enough just to clear things out. We need to replace it. And what do we have to replace it with? We have to replace it with something better and greater and more glorious that means that the old idols cannot take up home in our hearts again. Now, my day off this week, um, I decided to clean the gutters, which is about my most um, least favorite thing to do on my day off. So I did it right at the start. And I did it because I knew it was dry, so at least I'm clearing out dry stuff from the gutters rather than wet stuff. And there was leaves and there was moss. But you know what really gets me? In a year's time, it'll be back. I'll have to go out again. I'll have to keep clearing the gutters. What's the solution? Well, you have to put something else in the gutter so the leaves and the moss don't go in. I identified a product this week. I won't advertise it, but I'm looking forward to putting it in place. Why? Because the way we stop our hearts from going back to the idols of the past is we fill them with something else. Who and what are we going to fill them with? The Lord. Our Lord Jesus Christ. He must take the place of our idols. And you know what the great thing is? The Lord Jesus Christ is so much better. The Lord Jesus Christ is so much more wonderful than any other idol we have been serving in our hearts. He satisfies us in ways that all those things that Solomon was living for never satisfy. He fills us with joy in a way that those things can never fill us with joy. And he alone is sufficient. He alone can fill our hearts in that sense in a way that the idols do not return. And I think that's something of what Paul is praying for in the book of Ephesians when he prays that glorious prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 in verses 14 
through to 19. What does he say? For this reason I kneel before the Father. He's praying for Christians. From whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. For what purpose? What is he going to want to put in their hearts? What is he praying God would put in their hearts? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. That's what we need, friends. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all God's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love as a pastor's knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Friends, our prayer, our deliberate response to identifying idols, repenting of our idols, needs to be to replace our idols. And there is no one and nothing who can sufficiently replace them but our glorious Saviour. So may our joy be full in him, and may our hearts be so full of him that he means everything to us. Our God and our Father, how we give you our thanks that in our Lord Jesus Christ we have one who is so glorious that he is sufficient to fill and captivate our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for all the times and all the ways in which we have served false gods. Give us grace, we pray, to shun idols. And we pray, Lord God, that by your Spirit, we would see each day more and more of the glories of our Saviour, that he would fill our vision, that he would fill our hearts, that there would be no space, therefore, for anything and anyone else to come and take the place that is rightly yours and yours alone. So receive our thanks. We bless you for our Saviour and all that he is to us. And help us, we pray, to live for him and him always. Amen.